Our scripture text this morning is from James chapter 1. I was thinking as I wrote that down, um, years and years ago when Linda and I were first married, um, one of my first ministry jobs, this was like a long time ago, 38 years now, and uh, one of my first ministry jobs was teaching a junior high Sunday school class at Calvary Bible Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And we set off on a phrase-by-phrase study of the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I don't think I ever finished chapter 5 with those kids, to be honest. And I remember a while after Linda and I were married, I got a letter from one of the boys who had been in that class. And he was just wishing us well and thanking us and blessing us as we went on our way. But he said, I'm so confused. Every time I go to Sunday school and I sit down and the teacher doesn't say, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I just don't know what to do. And I'm sure some of you feel that way about the book of Revelation by this point. So here it is, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Today we'll be looking at James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. So here we are starting a brand new series, and I think it's going to be somewhat shorter than the last series. At least I don't think that we can spend three years plus on the letter of James, although there was a Puritan preacher, I cannot remember which one, but in Scotland, in the, in the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, there was a Puritan preacher who spent over 30 years in a single series on the book of Hebrews. So I guess proportionately, given how long Hebrews is and how long James is, three years would no, no, we're definitely, definitely not going to do that. We plan to finish this series um, by the end of the summer or very shortly thereafter. And the only connection really to the series that we just finished is that James was written at roughly the same time. And it was written to much the same group of people who were being addressed in the book of Revelation, as we're going to see in just a minute. But before we get to that, the author of the book... This book was written by James. How do I know it was written by James? Well, I'm going to borrow something that I heard a pastor say a long time ago in Savannah, Georgia. It's in the Bible, and it says right here, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's how I know it was written by James. It says it was written by James. Now the question that comes up is which James? Because there are a few in Scripture. There is James, the brother of John, who was known as one of the sons of thunder, and he would probably be the most obvious. He was one of the twelve that Jesus chose to accompany him and that he designated apostles as he was ministering in Galilee and Judea. But James was also one of the very first to be martyred. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. You might remember that story. It happened sort of as an almost little introduction to that story about Peter who had been jailed by Herod Agrippa. Because Herod thought, well, the Jews were so happy when I executed James, I guess, you know, we'll, 
we'll go for number two and maybe even try for a hat trick and get John in there somewhere along the way. So we, we focus in on Peter because he was miraculously released from jail. And that's, that's great. There was a church who had gathered together and was praying for Peter, and Peter was visited by an angel and released from prison. We could assume that the same church was praying for James. James was not delivered by an angel. He had his head removed from his shoulders, and we think that happened early enough in the history of the church that he is not likely the author of this book. There are a couple of other possibilities. There is James the Less, which could either mean James the Younger, he was younger than the other James, or it could mean that he was shorter than the other James, or it could mean both. Just there was big James and little James, apparently. Um, I'm not sure how happy little James was with that particular designation, but he was another one. And there was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also one of the 12, and who was probably a brother of Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who's also known as a son of Alphaeus. So we have James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee. We have another James and Matthew, who were the sons of Alphaeus. But as one commentator states, it is almost certain that the author of this book is James, the brother of Jesus, one of the other sons of Mary, Jesus' mother. Now, some people don't think about this or realize this, but Scripture teaches that Mary remained a virgin until after Jesus was born, but then later on in the stories that the Gospels tell us about Jesus, we find Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters coming to see him at the place where he's ministering to people. Now, some have taught, well, brothers and sisters in a spiritual sense, right? Because just like us, we're all brothers and sisters, But that doesn't make sense in the context of the story because when these people come to see Jesus, the the folks who are waiting at the door come in and they say, hey, Rabbi, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus stops and he says, well, who are my mother and my brothers? These people right here who are listening to me, those who hear and those who do the will of my father, they are my family. In Christ. So the distinction only works if the people who were standing outside, because they were pretty much convinced that Jesus had lost his mind, were actually his blood relatives, Mary and Jesus' half-brothers, James and Joseph and Simon, and another one is named, and some sisters there too. He had at least six half-siblings, four brothers and at least two sisters who were the children of Mary and presumably Joseph, but not the Son of God in the sense that Jesus was. James is most likely that James. He had been skeptical of Jesus during his earthly ministry, but he was converted after Jesus rose from the dead. His brothers, who had taunted him at one point, eventually believed And we have a couple letters of scripture that we believe are proof of that. This letter of James, the letter of Jude as well, we believe comes from one of the half-brothers of Jesus himself. The early church historian Hegesippus identified him as James the Just, testifying to his extraordinary godliness, his zeal for obedience to the law of God, and his singular devotion to prayer. 
So the author of this book that we'll be studying this summer is James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, or Just James, if you prefer. The tradition here is strong, but there's really no way to be certain. Now, some of the things he says make sense with when understood in the light of that relationship that he would have had not only to Jesus, but to the Old Testament law. Jesus had a habit of going to the synagogue every single Sabbath day. And there's no doubt that that habit was developed in Jesus because his mother and father took him and all of his siblings. And they went to synagogue where they were taught the word, where they got that deep background in the Old Covenant scriptures. And James will work some of those out in much the same way that we saw in the book of Revelation, where our understanding of that book depends on our being able to connect those dots back to the Old Testament. We're going to find a similar dynamic here in James. And the fact that it was probably James, the brother of Jesus, isn't, it's, it's significant, but it's not that significant because look how he chose to identify himself. He does not say James, the brother of Jesus, which he could have done as the half-brother of Jesus. In some of the praise songs that are around these days, there's that big emphasis, you're my friend and you are my brother, that kind of idea. But James, in writing scripture, doesn't see that as a place to lean for the authority that he needs. Rather, he identifies himself as a servant, a bond servant, a slave. The the Greek word there carries that idea. It's the same word that would have been used for someone who had had been bought and paid for by a Roman master. It was not a place of honor. It was not a place of dignity. It was not a servant in the sense of a steward over the house who is in charge of all things. Could mean that. But more often it just meant someone who is owned by someone else, who belongs to someone else. You might think of a phrase that's common around here. I belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death. And sometimes we think of that like, oh, well, we're God's favorite puppy. We belong to him. But that's really not the point. James comes at this book as one who is a bond servant, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in introducing himself that way, James sets himself on equal footing with the other authors of Holy Scripture. He doesn't put himself above Paul. Paul was a bond servant of Christ Jesus. James says, yeah, well, I was his half-brother, but that really doesn't count for much. I, too, am a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the way that he phrases that, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he puts Christ in a place of equality with God himself. He's saying, because I'm a servant of God, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a servant of God He sets Christ in this place of equality with God as both lawgiver and judge. That's important here from the beginning because some have taken this book of James. You don't have to look very hard to find some commentator who will say James is like a New Testament Proverbs. And, And so the pieces of James don't really fit together in some kind of flow. They're just just 
connected the way that Proverbs sometimes are. I don't believe that's true. For starters, it just is evident from the structure of the book itself that it's not true. But also, it's important to understand Proverbs can be taken as basically good advice. Proverbs are not promises. We read things in the Proverbs that speak to sort of the ordinary structure of how God is at work in his world. And we can lean on those and realize that those can give us comfort and those can give us encouragement, but Proverbs are not promises. And when we claim them as promises, we're taking God's word in a completely different sense from the way that it's intended. James is not a book of Proverbs in the New Testament. James is an apostolic letter to the church of Jesus Christ. And what he writes ought not to be taken as mere good advice. James writes as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that position, he speaks for the Lord. He will eventually say, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James is saying, if you have heard the word of the Lord and you know the word of the Lord, if you have asked God for wisdom, I'll anticipate next Sunday's sermon a little bit. If you have asked God for wisdom and God has given you his wisdom, don't decide that that's not exactly the way that you wanted to go and fail to do that by doing something else. This is not good advice. This is the commands of Jesus Christ to his church spoken with all of the authority of an apostle. That phrase, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin, that's not something that would be true of mere human advice, even if the advisor happened to be the half-brother of Jesus. Instead, Peter's rule applies here, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I really want to stop and preach a whole different sermon when I read that. The source of the prophecy is not from inside someone's self, and the interpretation of that prophecy is not dependent on what comes from inside someone. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The imagery that Peter uses there is that these apostolic authors of Scripture were like sailboats. And they put up the sail and the wind of the Spirit filled it and carried it wherever he would. So James the Just is speaking in this book as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit and he is communicating the very word and the wisdom of God. And he is communicating that to the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion. In other words, to the church, which he would have understood not to be the replacement for. Sometimes if you're looking online, especially if you were Googling some of the things that I was teaching about in the book of Revelation, you might have run into some criticism of reformed eschatology from the standpoint of, well, they're teaching a replacement theory that the church has replaced Old Covenant Israel. That is not what we teach. That is not how James would have understood it. He would not have thought that the church has replaced Old Covenant Israel. He would have understood that the church of Jesus Christ is the true continuation of the Israel of God. 
which is exactly what Paul would call the church in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. And he would make that reference after he had said earlier, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the New Testament authors didn't teach a continuation of the Old Covenant with the idea that the church has somehow come in next to Israel, parallel to Israel under the New Covenant. They didn't teach that the Old Covenant ended and the New Testament church replaced Old Covenant Israel. What they taught, as we saw in the book of Revelation, is that Old Covenant Israel expands outward to become this church of Jesus Christ. In Revelation, the 12 tribes are that great multitude that no one could number from all the tribes and peoples and languages. The church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is James' audience. When James says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's not writing a Jewish book for a Jewish audience. He is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ and he is writing to the church of Jesus Christ because if you are Christ's, as many of you who were baptized into Christ, if you have put on Christ, if you belong to him, body and soul in life and in death, then, and frankly only then, are you Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Remember? That song you used to do way back. Father Abraham had many sons. Alan, get your arms and your feet going. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. If you belong to Christ, then you are the true Israel of God. Then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. So let's just praise the Lord, and let's hear the word of the Lord. As he addressed it through James to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, that is to the whole church of Jesus Christ, wherever and whenever it is found throughout all of the world. And James goes on to say to the 12 tribes, to the church of Jesus Christ, to us as the heirs of that church, greetings. Now, if you do a real deep dive here into the Greek and you get into the commentaries and the lexicons and all of that, the word greetings means, well, greetings. It's, like, <laughs> it's just the most common um, address in a letter that you would ever find. Sometimes it means rejoice. Either way, it's good because given what comes next, that word greetings in James chapter 1 verse 1 is what some people would say just about the last reasonable thing that James had to say. Um, but before we get to that, just one more thing here. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This traditional form of address, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, if it serves no other purpose, serves to make it clear that what we have here is a letter. 
See, if a person were to sit down to write a theological treatise or a sermon, and I have some familiarity with how this works, you might begin with the end in mind. What is my big preaching point? What's the big idea, as, as my brother Matt always says? What's the big idea for this week? Um, and you might start with that in mind, and then you kind of look in the text and you see how the text is organized to lead us from wherever we are to whatever that big idea may be. We end up with kind of a hierarchical outline of the book. And it's possible that when Paul sat down to write the book of Romans, he had something like that in his head because Romans has that sort of structure. You can look at the way Paul outlines his logic, his thought, and you can follow it through. But the general epistles, so we're talking James and Jude and 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, um, to a lesser extent, the epistle to the Hebrews. They don't have that same sort of structure, at least of all of them, Hebrews is the only one that, that kind of does. But they're letters. It's like if you had family far away, some of you maybe have family in the Netherlands or somewhere else in the world, and you remember back in the days before instant communication, before texting and email and Zoom and all of those things, every now and then you sat down and you put a piece of paper on the table in front of you and you started to write a letter, dear Frank, whatever. I remember getting letters from kids that I had counseled in a Christian camp when I was in high school and early college myself. And these were all kids from up around Sioux Lookout in Dryden, Ontario. And I must have got like 20 letters. They must have taught this in the schools in that area because every letter began, Dear Dave, how are you? I am fine. You know, that's, that's how they all started. How are you? I am fine. And then they go on with whatever happened to pop into their head. Yesterday, I got a new bike for my birthday. It was red. I like red. My favorite candy is cherry because it's red. And there's that flow of consciousness, that connection, not of logical bullet points, but of words and ideas. And as we go through the book of James, we're going to see that that's essentially what James is doing. He sits down to write a letter. You can see that in the structure of the book. And he's writing a letter to the church in the dispersion because Acts chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that at the time when Stephen was stoned, the church in Jerusalem was scattered. They were scattered across Judea and Samaria and further than that. And they knew it was going to happen. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus had said, I will, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Judea or in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, that starts to happen. And it seems like maybe they weren't all that enthusiastic about leaving Jerusalem. Um, there was an old song that was singing about the Canaanites a long time ago that said, you know, God did not compel them to go against their will. He just made them willing to go. And that seems like what happened. Jesus said, you're going to go into all the world and you're going to be witnesses. You're going to proclaim the gospel. You're going to make disciples. You're going to baptize them. And you're going to teach them to do the things that I have taught you to do. Meanwhile, they're all kind of hanging around in Jerusalem because, well, this is comfortable. We have our friends. 
We have our homes. We have our businesses. And then Stephen is stoned. And we're told Paul goes out that day and begins to ravage the church of Jesus Christ. He's arresting people and he's dragging them in and he's throwing them in jail. And the result of that persecution is that this central church in Jerusalem just sort of blows up in every direction. And the Christians go out. Acts 8, 1 also tells us, though, that the apostles stayed. The apostles, the leaders of the church, the founders, if you will, beyond Jesus, of the church of Jesus Christ, stayed in Jerusalem. So James is like a pastor whose flock has just all moved off into distant places, and he wants to communicate to them. They're they're people that he knows, and they are people that he loves, and he wants to write them a letter to encourage them in the midst of this persecution that they are experiencing. Now, the way that he does this is by stating his central idea, and we're going to see that in just a second. But then he writes around that idea in a way that all of the rest of James is just ideas and thoughts that spin off from that central point. But remember, he writes this big idea to a people who have been driven out of Jerusalem by persecution. They have been set on the road to the farthest corners of the empire. They have lost their homes. They have lost their livelihoods. Families have been separated. People have died. Saul is ravaging the church, and he is arresting people. And it's during these times, or possibly during the imperial persecution that would follow, that James sends this letter out to the church. He gives them this message, and such a message. Contrary to what you might expect a pastor to write to a suffering people, he doesn't write, take heart. Things are tough all over, but they're bound to get better sooner or later. Don't worry, this won't last long. Instead, Pastor James writes to a church that has been ravaged. He writes to people whose families have been dragged off and imprisoned. And having given this one word, greetings, he dives right in. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this is the summary statement for the whole book of James. If you read through the email that I sent out early in the work week, I said you might want to memorize these verses. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The rest of the book is going to circle all around that idea and multiple times around that idea. Everything else in this letter will in some sense spin off from that central theme. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I actually like the old American standard. That would be this version on this verse. It said, count it all joy, my brethren, when ye fall into manifold temptations. It sort of gives you this picture. Someone who's going down the road and they're just minding their own business and maybe they're whistling a happy tune and suddenly they fall into a pit. 
They fall into manifold temptations. They couldn't see it coming. They couldn't prevent it. They just fell into it. And there they are in the pit, or in the pits maybe, and James comes along to help them out by saying, hey, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's a counterintuitive message. It's not the message we want to hear when we fall into various trials. It's not the message that we want to give to someone who has fallen into various trials. But it's not unique to James. Peter wrote the same thing. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And I could go on because Jesus said much the same thing, and it's found in other parts of the New Testament and the Old. But just notice the scope of this first exhortation, this first command. And there are two in that passage that's up on the screen behind me. It's not limited to persecution. Persecution was likely the occasion It was the persecution that drove the church from Jerusalem out into the corners of the world. But as they were driven out, they began to experience other kinds of trials and hardships. If you have left your home and your job and your business behind and you have gone on the road with the clothes on your back, there's going to be trials. Trials of various kind, manifold trials. And James is not limiting his teaching in this book to just persecution. He's saying, whatever the trial may be, and he will elaborate on the subject as he goes forward. He will talk about personal trials, and spiritual trials, and social trials, and financial trials, and yes, even health trials. We'll come to all that a little bit later in the summer. The thing here to notice, though, is that James is not instructing us to enjoy suffering for its own sake. Not at all. This is not a handbook for Christian masochism. Rather, he commands us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So right away, we are told the end to which we ought to inspire steadfastness, And we are told the means to that end, trials of various kinds. That will be significant next Sunday. And since trials of various kinds will lead to steadfastness, and since steadfastness or perseverance is the goal, then we ought to rejoice when we meet trials because trials become opportunities for us to grow. That applies to us as individuals, but it wouldn't be hard to make the case that it applies to churches and to the body of Christ as well. Trials produce steadfastness. Why do we need steadfastness? We find that in the second exhortation, found in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. So again, we have the means, steadfastness, perseverance, and we have the end in view that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, that you may be sanctified, that you may be like Jesus. We're going to talk about this more as we go along. But I think that so often we encounter trials, and sometimes they're little trials. They feel like kind of a speed bump that somebody put in the wrong place after you have started to accelerate and your car kind of jumps off the ground. And sometimes they feel like those potholes that seem big enough to swallow the whole car. We fall into trials. We encounter trials. And our natural reaction, at least our natural reaction as Christians, is maybe to turn to God and say, God, I am not equipped for this. I don't know what to do. Get me out of this. But here's the thing. We are equipped. We are equipped for this. We have God's word and spirit. We have been sealed for the day of redemption. We belong to God, body and soul, in life and in death. We have already been equipped with all that we need. We have the armor of God. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, but we have to learn to use it. We need to learn to stand. And when we say, get me out of this, what we're doing is asking for God to remove us from the very place where we have a hope of developing the strength that we need to remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. So what are we to do? James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy. Yes, really. Count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that you may be like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. He prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He despised, he scorned the shame of that horrible trial, yet for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the reward of being seated at God's right hand, he counted it all joy to undergo that trial, and he offered himself in full submission to the will of God. And when we feel that it's just too much, that we can't go on, that we are not equipped for this, that's when we are told to consider him who endured such, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's when we are told, in the words of James, count it all joy. When you meet trials of various kinds, count it as joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May we pray. Father, give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us this morning. Grant us wisdom 
Lord, that we may live as the people that you have called us to be in this world, that even when we go through times of trial and suffering, even persecution, Father, we would count it all joy because we know that in those times you are at work in our lives to make us the people that you have called us to be in the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.